Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Summetry for the Global Summetry Project. This is actually episode 17 in the Summit Dialogue series, and I am looking forward to introducing uh, to you Philip Lipsky, uh, who will be speaking to us uh, on uh, Japanese leadership in uh, the liberal order. Uh, Philip and I were lucky enough to attend uh, a conference recently uh, at the University of British Columbia and the Japanese Center there, uh, entitled Japanese Leadership in the Liberal International Order. And uh, I thought it would be great for Philip and I to sit down and talk about uh, the question of uh, current Japanese leadership. Um, uh, Philip is uh, today the, uh, an associate uh, professor of political science at the University of Toronto, but he's the chair as well in Japanese politics and global affairs and the director of the Center for the Study of Global Japan at the Monk School. He has published extensively on Japanese politics and foreign policy, and before coming here to the Monk School, um, he was an assistant professor at Stanford University uh, in California. So, uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce to you uh, Philip Lipsky as we begin a discussion of uh, the question Japanese leadership in the liberal order today. All right, so it's a pleasure to have Philip with us in our studio here at uh, at the Monk School. So welcome, Philip. Pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, so you and I were among quite a number of uh, researchers and some officials, etc., who attended a conference at, at the University of British Columbia's uh, Center for Japanese Research Workshop, and the... Um, uh, particular conference was titled Japan's Leadership in the Liberal International Order. So um, it would appear from that, you know, from our discussions over about a day and a half, that it is evident that Japan seems to be taking a much more visible role in international relations. What do you think explains uh, this? Yeah, so I think there are a, a few factors. Uh, one is that uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, is now the longest-serving uh, prime minister in Japanese history, and he's always uh, had an agenda uh, to elevate Japan uh, both uh, domestically through economic growth and, uh, in, in his case, constitutional reform, uh, but also to uh, reestablish Japan's leadership in foreign affairs. Um, and so I think that uh, was one impetus, but also uh, the international situation, particularly uh, President Trump, uh, uh, you know, becoming the leader of the United States and in many ways uh, pulling back uh, from a U.S. leadership role on the uh, liberal order uh, created some space for Japan to step in and uh, effectively play uh, a role that 
traditionally uh, has been difficult because, uh, you know, the United States has really been uh, at the forefront in, in many ways. So I, I think it's both of those things. I think there is an interest on the Japanese side in playing this role, and then uh, effectively an opportunity uh, has presented itself. And maybe this is in line with that, but I think many experts were kind of taken aback when the current Abe government, uh, following uh, Trump, the Trump administration's rejection of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, uh, seemed to take on the main role in drawing together the remaining 11 and concluding uh, the trade arrangements for what is now called the CPTPP, the Comprehensive uh, Agreement. So uh, is this explained by that, or is there additional things that Japan was reacting to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I think that's a significant part of the explanation. Uh, There was a concern that without U.S. leadership, uh, there would... uh, the, the TPP would essentially fall apart. And because the TPP had been marketed as essentially uh, an agreement uh, among uh, relatively uh, liberal uh, free trading countries uh, and positioned as a way to uh, promote that agenda in some ways uh, as a counterweight to China, uh, that if TPP falls apart, it would harm uh, Japan's national interests. Uh, and so uh, I think that foreign policy view was quite important. But one thing that came up at the conference that I thought was interesting was that um, uh, Abe uh, had uh, broached this issue with Trump personally mm-hmm. during their meeting at Mar-a-Lago and that the U.S. side had basically said, that's fine, you can go and do this. And if that uh, hadn't been forthcoming, uh, the implication seemed to be that perhaps Japan would not have moved forward with uh, kind of rescuing the TPP. So in some sense, uh, it may be that the kind of lack of strategic thinking on the U.S. side uh, created space for Japan to go ahead and do this. It, it may be the case that if the U.S. had told Japan uh, we strongly oppose uh, you rescuing the TPP, that Japan might have stepped back and not taken on that role. Hmm. Well, that's that's a critical question. I'll come back to, the, again, this perspective, because this kind of double-faced uh, problem with mm-hmm. the United States is, is something of uh, particular interest. But let me switch uh, you over and talk uh, about the other feature, which is clearly put... Uh, Japan in the in the front ranks, and that of course was uh, the hosting that Japan did for mm-hmm. the G20 su- summit um, up to December of uh, 2019, um, with the summit itself occurring in Osaka uh, in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, over the years, for those of us who've you know kind of kept up with things, you know, global summitry wise. Um, we noticed that there had always been a certain hesitancy on the part of Japan vis-a-vis the G20, mm-hmm. uh, that, that it seemed uh, that Japan had a, a strong interest in the G7, mm-hmm. uh, but that there was always some ambivalence when it came to the G20. 
Um, how do you see, I mean, has that changed? Did Osaka change it? Were there changes already underway in terms of Japan's foreign policy making? Yeah, no, I, I think you're the expert on this. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my sense of it uh, in talking to various policy officials and experts is that you're, you're absolutely right. The G7 has traditionally been uh, the, the favored avenue uh, for Japan. Uh, and, and it makes sense. Uh, in the G7, Japan is the second economy uh, uh, behind the United States. It's a smaller group, easier to reach consensus and lead the global agenda and so forth. And G the G20 uh, puts Japan in a slightly smaller role among a larger set of less like-minded countries. Uh, so, you know, in a variety of ways, the G20 looks a little bit less attractive uh, for Japan. But I think, you know, as many other countries have realized, uh, it's uh, becoming harder and harder for the G7 to lead mm -hmm. on global issues because you have the rise of the rest uh, and mm -hmm. China and India and Russia and so forth. And so I think there's an increasing realization in Japan as well that the G20 uh, is an important avenue uh, for symmetry. And uh, I think hosting did, in fact, uh, serve as an opportunity uh, to build greater support domestically for the G20 as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I guess, you know, it's worth dwelling just a moment further on Osaka by asking the question, did Japan come away thinking the government in particular that this was a reasonable success that you know the the Abe government's leadership really uh, sh you know shone through as it hosted uh, the G20 yeah i think i think so i think the perception uh, among officials in japan is that uh, the summit was overall a success uh, mm -hmm. i think uh, you know there there is a realization that not everything turned out well. Uh, but given the circumstances, uh, I think uh, the view is that they uh, made the, the best of a challenging mm -hmm. situation. So I think in that sense, um, you know, there there's a high level of satisfaction. And I think the domestic media coverage uh, was also relatively positive. It certainly wasn't portrayed as a disaster or a, a bad outcome for Japan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, let's open up the picture a little bit by uh, kind of now focusing on the kind of the Asia Pacific um, and trying to gauge kind of progress in global governance there. It seems yeah. that um, for analysts, commentators, there are several critical issues. One is progress in a rules-based trade regime, Asia-Pacific, but broader than that, and in particular, WTO reform. Mm -hmm. um, and two, uh, a, a hoped-for uh, de-escalation of the rivalry between uh, the U.S. and China, particularly on the trade aspects. Mm -hmm. uh, and thirdly, uh, an effort maybe to move more in the region on climate change and, mm -hmm. and leadership there. So let me let me go back and take a look at the WTO. Uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, very recently, at Davos, uh, 16 nations, which include the EU uh, and China, uh, joined together to establish a mediation mechanism uh, to keep dispute settlement the dispute settlement process going while mm -hmm. hopefully there's some breakthroughs at some point with respect to 
uh, the dispute resolution reform and the re-engineering of the dispute settlement mechanism. But I noticed that Japan did not uh, join in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does that signal? What, what, what's the reaction? Why is the Japanese government either hesitant or not prepared to join with other very major countries in, in this effort? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to a point that we were discussing earlier. There's mm-hmm. a reluctance in Japan to alienate or upset the United States. And the WTO is a very core issue for the Trump administration. And uh, it's not on this issue in particular, but when I've talked about WTO reform with Japanese officials, the, the view that I get often is, you know, the way the Trump administration is going about this is not something that Japan supports. But there are underlying problems uh, with the WTO uh, that Japan and the United States and, in their view, other countries also agree on and the reform is necessary. And so I think the thinking in Japan is, can we use this moment of crisis uh, to create uh, positive reforms that end up strengthening uh, the global trading regime? And I think uh, for that agenda... Uh, the view is that making sure the United States is not completely alienated uh, and isolated uh, could eventually be helpful in moving towards a resolution. Okay. I, I mean, understood, although it, it, it's some, somewhat hard to, uh, to match it up as against the other parties that were prepared to do this. Somehow uh, it seems that Japan views this as... Um, interfering with the reform process. Uh, And that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I don't think they necessarily see it as interfering. Um, But it would be, uh, you know, uh, potentially seen as a rebuke of the United States. And I think uh, they're being careful in choosing uh, which battles to fight, essentially. (laughs) Okay. the um, initiative by the Abe government, uh, the the so-called the the FOIP, right, mm-hmm. the free and open Indo-Pacific system, uh, you know, in that view, and maybe you could give us uh, some detail around how Japan sees the FOIP, because there seems to be various images uh, yep. depending on which country you're talking well, about. Within Japan as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Uh, but then the question becomes, and I think it's a critical one in some respects, is how does China fit into this? Mm-hmm. How does China be part of the FOIP as perceived by Japan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the the FOIP concept has evolved considerably. Um, and you can, you can follow this in uh, uh, reports put out by the Japanese foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my colleague at Columbia, uh, Takako Hikotani, has some really great work on this. Um, you know, initially, I think it's fair to say FOIP had a little bit of a feel of uh, a soft um, alliance uh, directed against China. Mm-hmm. Not explicitly so, but at least in, in the formal way it was being organized, uh, it could certainly be perceived that way. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a little bit of a change in emphasis uh, moving forward. Uh, for example, the 
uh, word strategy was removed from FOIP. It used to be a FOIP strategy, but now it's no longer uh, a strategy. It's a vision. Um, and the emphasis has uh, shifted so that it's uh, in some ways more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's uh, been very uh, clearly made less uh, confrontational. I don't think it was confrontational. Maybe that's too strong a word, but uh, to uh, make sure it doesn't alienate China or uh, be positioned in opposition to China. Um, and that probably reflects uh, to some degree the uh, improving diplomatic relations between Japan and China uh, over the past few years. Uh, so uh, FOIP uh, itself was uh, made uh, less uh, uh, explicitly uh, uh, kind of, well, less, uh, you know, at least they, they were concerned that it would be perceived as an anti-China uh, initiative. Um, but, you know, the, I, I think, as you said, the, the problem with FOIP, in my view, is that it, it means different things to different people. Mm. And it, the concept hasn't been articulated very clearly um, as, you know, this is exactly what we're going to do. And so many things have been attached to it, including infrastructure investment aid and free trade and other things. Um, so, you know, there is a danger that uh, the concept becomes more and more, uh, you know, it, it, by including so many things, it start, starts to lose mm-hmm. any, uh, any focus any focus or meaning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah just, I, mean, I take it the Americans have picked picked up on it as well but their view tends to be much more security oriented not surprisingly i suppose much more security oriented and much less involved with kind of uh, not surprisingly i suppose multilateral trade uh, that kind Mm -hmm. of of vision that clearly seems to be close to an anathema uh, to this administration. Absolutely. I, it, one of the striking things in a lot of U.S.-Japan dialogues that I've observed is U.S. policymakers thanking Japan for uh, bringing this concept of FOIP to them, which they've embraced wholeheartedly. But you also notice that they seem to be talking about completely different things <laughs> in many ways. So, you know, it's it's a nice slogan, but whether or not it actually becomes something substantial that sets the foreign policy agendas of the United States or Japan, I think that remains to be seen. Okay. And in behind that, of course, I uh, wanted to raise the, the question of the RCEP, which mm-hmm. is the Regional Comprehensive Partnership, uh, again, a trade arrangement. Uh, uh, Japan has been a serious player uh in that is that you know kind of i don't know is it part of foip or is it completely separate i mean it rcep has always been perceived of as kind of the other trade arrangement mm-hmm. other than the tpp which we right. know has been altered as well and so was i presume japan was sensitive to that that mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. yeah so i think um you know T- tpp or cptpp now is essentially uh, a higher standards agreement compared to RCEP. And, you know, that, that I think is a critical difference that makes it possible for Japan to pursue both agreements uh, simultaneously. And Mm -hmm. I I think you're accurate in characterizing Japan's uh, view on this is basically, you know, agreements that open trade, uh, you know, are are generally a, a good thing. And that even though RCEP doesn't have quite the high standards of TPP, 
it includes more countries, critically China, and uh, at least until a few months ago, India. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and so, you know, having that type of agreement uh, that's broad and quite not up to the same standards can still be valuable. And so now that India is out, I think the interesting thing for Japan would be, do you still push forward uh, now that in some ways it could end up looking like a China-dominated uh, agreement, uh, or does Japan try uh, to bring India back in uh, as a way of moving forward? And I take it up until this point, uh, Japan has kept pressing forward on trying to get Indian agreement Absolutely. Uh, on, on the RCEP. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's been a very important priority for Japan. I think there was quite a bit of consternation when India uh, announced that it would be pulling out. But mm -hmm. there's my understanding is some hope that uh, India uh, can be uh, uh, brought back in. So we'll, we'll see whether that assessment uh, ends up being correct. Let's look again at China and uh, China-Japan relations. Very important uh, meeting this uh, May. Uh, the uh, Xi Jinping, uh, uh, president, uh, chairman of uh, the party, China is going to be in Japan. Um, does this, and I take it they're looking at a so-called fifth agreement. I mean, they've had a series of agreements, uh, particularly as uh, Japan and uh, China, but also Korea, pressed f slowly, but pressed forward on what was called the Trilateral Summit. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, is, is it in the minds of the leadership, Abe, uh, Xi Jinping, that maybe it's time to resurrect uh, the Trilateral Summit? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, the, the trilateral summit uh, was a great idea that has been overtaken by various uh, geopolitical events. Um, and I, I think there is appetite um, on the Japanese side, uh, for sure, to uh, grow it into something uh, more serious. And I think there is a degree of realism in Japan about what China is doing here, right? So clearly, uh, U.S.-China relations are not in a good place, yeah. and China has an incentive uh, to uh, smooth over relations with Japan. Uh, and uh, I think Japan is taking that opportunity. Uh, as you recall, uh, it wasn't long ago that Japan and China were, uh, you know, in, in a very bad place. Uh, the bilateral relation, especially mm -hmm. over territorial issues, uh, mm -hmm. uh, were very cold. Um, and so... You know, I think the Abe government is taking advantage of uh, the moment to try to move things forward. Um, but if you talk to people uh, who uh, are in the Japanese uh, defense establishment, uh, they still continue to see China as the major geopolitical threat okay. to Japan. So I don't think that view has changed very much. Right. So I presume questions like the East China Sea and the kind of heron conflict there in the last few years is not exactly gone away. No, and in fact, uh, you know, Chinese uh, uh, vessels are still very much active in the disputed waters, uh, and there hasn't been a reduction mm -hmm. in that activity. So it hasn't been increasing, which is taken as a positive signal, uh, but there's still, you know, daily um, incursions, uh, incursions yeah. uh, mm -hmm. from, from the Japanese perspective, of course, yeah. they're considered incursions, um, and uh, self-defense forces or um, the Japanese Coast Guard are having to deal with these, and so there's quite a bit of wear and tear and fatigue on the Japanese 
Chinese side um, okay. in managing this. Right. Uh, let's look at that for just to come to completion on the third on the third leg, which is Korea. Mm -hmm. Clearly, uh, with respect to South Korea, clearly very bad um, relations currently. Much of it very domestic oriented. Uh, the Korean decisions of the courts, uh, the back and forth on the, um, you know, the sensitive materials being um, uh, blocked or, uh, you know, taken off the list, uh, Korea. Um, what's, is there any prospect of improvement here or is this kind of, they're mired until new leadership, new government, whatever, whatever? So I... Uh... I've talked to Japanese officials uh, who think that uh, under the current leadership of Korea, mm -hmm. the likelihood of an improvement is very small. Okay. Uh, some have, a, have said zero. <laughs> um, I, I'm not quite as pessimistic, uh, but, but there is a very tough underlying issue, which is the forced labor issue, which is moving forward in Korean courts. Um, and... If, uh, you know, the, the current uh, situation is that uh, the, the uh, victims uh, have won the court case effectively and have the right in Korea to liquidate assets uh, of Japanese corporations. Mm -hmm. And if that liquidation takes place, then uh, I think the Japanese government would uh, be compelled because of domestic politics in Japan to take further uh, retaliatory action. They might not call it retaliation sure. because uh, that would be politically sensitive, but uh, that could probably, uh, that would probably lead to even greater tensions. And it doesn't look like the Korean side uh, is going to intervene in that process right now. So the, the kind of arrow is pointing in the wrong direction, if anything. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but you know, in, as is the case in all kinds of international diplomacy, you know, the, these are real people involved. And at some point, a uh, decision might be made to say, OK, we need to climb down and uh, mm -hmm. choose a different path. So I, w I wouldn't rule that out, but uh, I'm, I'm also not very optimistic. At least in the short term. Right. Uh, two, two final features. One, uh, both with respect to kind of the liberal order. On reflection, do you think Japanese officials might now second guess their the effort of the Abe government to I don't know um, try to remain close to Trump and at the same time try to begin the process of developing uh, more of a Japanese uh, forward position on foreign policy because it it you know in the Osaka summit it. It really was difficult. In fact, it wasn't successful. There have been very, various other concerns on the trade front. Still the threat of uh, automobile sanctions, even though they haven't been opposed to this point. Uh, is, it, you know, is there a second, is there some rethinking of their views on Trump? Or this is where it's at for Abe and, you know, they'll go down that road. Yeah, I think they're going to continue down this road. Yeah. Um, so fundamentally, Japan is uh, very reliant on the U.S.-Japan alliance for guaranteeing its security. So I think the view in Japan is that there's there's really no choice uh, that uh, and Abe's close relation with Trump is is something that at least 
holds the security relationship together. Um, but I think many officials would even go further and say that their close ties allow Japan to play a little bit of a mediating role in、uh, meetings like the G7 and G20. That basically、uh, Trump will personally ask Abe,、mm. you know, I don't want to talk to those people, so why don't you go and talk to them? And so, you know, there, there's almost a little bit of、uh, enjoying this new international importance as the only country that, you know, at least marginally gets along with the president of the, the United States.、Um, but, I, but I think the point you raise is a fair one, which is, you know, has this close relationship. Really gotten benefited,、it. yeah. Japan,、um, so I, I think you can make a you know, sort of a, a, a sort of a kind of a counterfactual case. Well, so if relations between Abe and Trump were very cold, you could argue, well, that would be even worse for Japan.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suppose you could say that,、uh, but. You know, have there been any concrete benefits? I think that's、uh, highly debatable. Okay. Final, final thoughts. From, and here again, looking at the liberal order. As you're aware,、um, in uh, 2018, the Japanese、uh, announced、uh, their intention to formally withdraw from the International Whaling Commission.、Uh, before that, they sought reform of, the, of, of it, but now they seem to be、uh, walking away. What does this tell us about, if at all, but what does this tell us about the Japanese government's view of the liberal order that they're prepared to extricate themselves、yeah. uh, from this particular、uh, commission? Yeah, so I think、uh, there, there are a few things going on here. So, one is kind of a purely domestic political story.、Um, so, on, on whaling, you know, the Japanese public largely doesn't care about this issue, right? <laughs> It's a very small. Uh, set of people in Japan who are quite passionate about whaling, but you know, whale meat is not kind of a staple uh, in uh, Japanese cuisine、uh, anymore. It used to be you know, served at school lunches and so forth after World War II, but these days it's very rare to see whale meat anywhere.、Um, but Uh, Abe is from Yamaguchi Prefecture, where they manufacture the whaling boats.、Um, mm. The uh, LDP, uh, Secretary General Nikai,、uh, is from Wakayama, where a lot of the whaling tradition in Japan um, uh, was built up. And so there, there was a particular political alignment in Japan. Uh, that supported、uh, withdrawal from the IWC that might have been just unique to、uh, those circumstances.、Um, but I think alongside that, there is also a greater willingness among Japanese officials、uh, to take this kind of action. So after World War II,、uh, you know, memories were still fresh of Japan's exit from the League of Nations,、mm-hmm. and there was a sense that Japan needed to rebuild、uh, trust. In the international community.、Uh, but now that so much time has passed, I think there's a sense that Japan has done、uh, what it needs to do.、Mm-hmm. And Japan is a trusted member of the international community, has contributed in a variety of ways. And so it doesn't really need to、uh, be shy about walking away from international agreements if they're not serving Japanese interests. So, in that sense, I think there is a little bit of a greater assertiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Japanese view on the IWC is we tried for 30 years、uh, pre- presenting scientific evidence,、uh, making arguments, um, um, you know,、uh, gathering votes from members. 
but uh, you know the the purpose of the organization in the Japanese view had changed from managing whaling to banning whaling, and that uh, this was just not consistent with uh, Japan's view. Uh, on the issue, and there was just therefore no more ground for negotiation within the IWC. So that's that's their view, um, and uh, you know whether it tells you something about uh, Japan's broader perspective on the liberal order is debatable. But uh, what I would say is I, I do think uh, you're going to see uh, greater assert- assertiveness from Japan mm. uh, in situations where. They feel that uh, institutions associated with the liberal order are not serving Japanese interests. So, to that degree, I would say Japanese policy probably has evolved. Okay. Well, thank you, Philip, for uh, joining with us in the studio. Uh, great to talk about uh, Japanese leadership and its impact on the liberal order. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.、Ah.